0: Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I encourage you or ask you actually to take your Bibles out uh, and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 33. Uh, but before we start in and I'll read this message, you want to uh, just thank uh, a word of acknowledgement to a guy named Simon Flinders, who first taught me this passage and really helped me understand it. So, a lot of the thinking is reflected uh, here from Simon, and I appreciate his insights because he taught me uh, really the idea of what Matthew's getting at in this passage, and I owe him a lot. Um, we're going to be reading again verses 26 through 33. I do encourage you to have your Bible open. Uh, I certainly don't want you to uh, just take my word for it. I want you to uh, hear me only as I speak faithfully God's word. So seeing it for yourself in front of you is a very wise thing to do each Sunday. Verse 26, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. ...than those many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... ...I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... ...I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for that. Well, the ESV editors decided to put a label on this section of Scripture that we just read... It's quite easy for them to come up with this label, right? It says, have no fear. And it's quite obvious because three times in these seven verses, Jesus tells his disciples and warns them against fear. Verse 26, don't be afraid. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, fear not. And I would imagine this exhortation makes sense to us this morning, doesn't it? Because there's so much fear in the world, isn't there? As we heard Pastor Sean say, today people, there are people who fear not having enough food for tomorrow. There are people today who fear that they may not even live to see tomorrow. There are people out there in the world who fear going home and seeing that person yet again who will physically or emotionally abuse them. There are people who fear what the government is going to do. But it's not just out there, it's in here, isn't it? In this room this morning, I am sure there are people who are fearing rejection, loneliness, their financial state, their marital state. There are people who fear public speaking. People are fear getting old, getting fat, getting cancer, getting sick. All kinds of fears. And when we mention these things this morning, we have to admit they're not just detached fears of people... From a, in a country far away, there are fears here within. They Fears that grip me, as I mention these things. Cause anxiety in my soul. So with all that, could, could you imagine, just for a moment, is it even possible to imagine a world without fear? Could you imagine what your life would be like if you've never felt fear again? What could you do to get rid of that fear? Now, I'm not talking about eradicating healthy fear. And if I had a fear. I teach my children, you know, when they cross the road look at cars, a fear of getting hit by a car. That's a healthy, good fear. I'm not talking about those. Let's leave those aside. But what if just for a moment we could eradicate all the fears that distract us from our life's mission, that grip us, that drain us, weigh us down and consume us? What if we could be done with all of that? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world... With much less fear. Now my question this morning. Is that the takeaway Jesus wants from us this morning. As we dwell on this passage. Well you have an outline here in your compass. And it may be helpful as you pull it out. You could take notes. Or at least just follow along with the two just basic points I want to make. And we see here the first point obvious. That there is a fear that Jesus condemns. And that fear is very clearly laid out there in verse 26. Our first verse. Fear not. Do not fear. But the question is, what kind of fear is Jesus condemning? Well, not hard. We just keep reading, right? We look far enough into the text and we see it's clearly there. He tells his disciples not to fear them. And if we just broaden our context out a little bit in this passage, we'll see who the them actually are. Back at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus decided to call 12 men to come alongside of him to train them so that they could replicate his teaching ministry throughout all the cities of Judea, all the cities of the Jews, the city of Jesus' kin. But he warns them there in verse 16 of chapter 10, he warns them that they need to be wise because he's sending them out as sheep amongst wolves. And since they're representing Jesus, they should be, expect to be treated just like Jesus was treated. You see that there in verse 24, that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant, his master. Right? If they call Jesus Beelzebub, what will they call his disciples? And Jesus is warning them that as they go out in this mission, as they go out, they will be slandered like he was. Perhaps they'll be publicly beaten. Certainly, they will be hated, even by their own family members. They may be delivered up to the authorities, they may be imprisoned, and most likely, and we know this is the case historically, they may even die because of this mission commissioned here in chapter 10. But Jesus is telling them, and he's encouraging them, that they must go on despite this opposition, that they need to go on and, from verse 27 there. What he's told them in the corners. What he's told them on their little walks on the hills. They must go out and shout and proclaim to anyone everywhere. Because Jesus really knows. And this is why he says it over and over again in this passage. He knows that persecution is not the great threat to this mission. It's fear. The paralyzing fear from within. The f- The fear that, what if someone does this to me? What if someone does that to me? And that's why he repeats the command three times. Do not fear. But it's really the command in verse 28 that I want to dwell on for a few moments this morning. Because this will give us a little insight and hopefully flesh out the problem of this fear. Verse 28, look at it again. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul soul and body, and hell. Now, if we paid attention to that verse, and if we're honest, we have to admit that Jesus is saying quite an outrageous thing here at this moment. He's saying that the opposition they will face will be so strong that they may very well die. And in verse 28, Jesus seems to be saying, but don't worry about it. Don't be scared. It's only death. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Because in our world, people talk about death as the thing most to be avoided. The irony is, and isn't isn't it, that no one's going to avoid it. You know, you have that really helpful conversation. You're walking down the hall, maybe in church, and someone asks you the question, Hey, Marty, how you doing? They really don't want to know. But I'll call their bluff, and I'll say, Actually, thank you for asking. Things are really hard. Work's stressful. Home life's tough. Busy finances are tight and at the point my friend's twitching there he didn't really want to get into all this but hey he asked and so without anything else to say what does he say well you know things are things are bad i know but hey at least you've got your health you know and despite of all the bad things going on at least you're not about to die but christians don't think of death like that do we because jesus didn't see deathless way we know there are realities in life that are far worse than death. What Jesus is saying is don't be scared. It's only death. So Jesus here is con- condemning, condemning a fear of men who may very well put his disciples to death. But don't miss the point. Jesus just isn't simply saying, hey, don't be afraid to die. You know, be a man. Stick it out. He is really condemning a fear of man, a fear of people. A fear that what others may think or say or do to you, if any respect, do not fear them. Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, says it this way, summarizes it rather well. People have significant limitation in what they can do to you and are not to be feared. If we are going to be afraid, let it not be of the minor danger that is all that evil people or or Satan himself can bring us, but of the major danger in God's holy wrath against such evil. See, it sounds odd, but Jesus is condemning a fear of people because their threat to us is no threat. So Jesus is condemning. Jesus' condemnation is clear, isn't it? Do not fear people. And instead, Jesus then commends to us a fear in its place, a fear of the Lord. And that's what the rest of verse 28 is showing us. There is one who is to be feared much more than those who can kill our body. It's the one who can do much more to us. It's the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And this statement here in verse 28 is a sober reminder that hell is a reality far, far more worthy of our fear than death, isn't it? It's far better to die young and safe in judgment than to live a ripe old age and go to hell. But Jesus just isn't saying that hell is scarier than death. He's saying that the people who can kill you are much less to be feared than the one who can destroy your body and soul. Just like Leon Morris said, people are so limited in what they can do to you. It's only death. But there is no limit in what our Creator, our Lord, our Judge, there's no limit to what He can do to us. Jesus is talking about who we should fear, not just what. He is commending to us the fear of the Lord. And why should these disciples fear the Lord? I mean, for us today, I hope we understand that. I hope this is just a review, but just in case, let's just look at these passages around verse 28 to understand why the disciples were to be fearless with respect to men, but fearful with respect to the Lord. You see there in verse verses 26 and 33 actually, that those who are slandering the disciples, those who are threatening them, those who may imprison them and those who may even kill them, Jesus says, don't worry. Judgment is coming. Their deeds are known. And their fate is far, far worse than even a torturous death they may afflict upon you. God is a much more powerful judge. And nothing goes goes unnoticed with Him. And nothing goes without retribution. See, the disciples are to keep fearing the Lord and acknowledge Him in public. Acknowledge Him to anybody and everyone they can. So that Jesus will acknowledge these disciples in front of their father and welcome them in to His eternally safe and wonderful kingdom forever and ever. They are to fear God because He is the powerful, strong Judge. But you also see there in verses twenty-nine through thirty-one that they're to fear God because God is in control, though it doesn't seem like it. I mean, the disciples are getting persecuted. It seems like the mission's not going so well. Fear not, Jesus says. I'm in control. Your father's in control. Even the relatively worthless sparrow is known and cared for by your heavenly father. And if that's the case, how much more does he care and know his disciples? The point's clear. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. There is no such thing as chaos in God's world. The judge from the first half of this verse, or the judge for the second half of verse 20, I should say, the judge that can turn your body over and your soul over to hell is the same judge who Jesus calls your father, who has a tender, loving care for you. In verses 29 through 31. Now it's clear from this context in chapter 10 and it's clear even from verse 29 that Jesus isn't telling them that everything will always be okay in this life. That things will go great and they don't have to worry about it. They will be persecuted. They may very well die. Their families may hate them. But a sparrow does not drop to the ground without God knowing. But Don't mistake, a sparrow may drop to the ground. Persecution may come, but all these things are under God's control. Though opposition seems fierce, though the enemies seem to have won, God isn't defeated, nor are his plans ever, ever thwarted. See, in this one verse, we see the two different ways the Bible brings together the concepts of fear. Jesus speaks of God as in terrifying judgment, as a terrifying judge. But he also speaks God as a heavenly, awesome, watchful father who treasures and cares for his followers. God is to be feared for both of these reasons. And in light of this, it would be rather foolish, Jesus thinks, and rather irrational to fear them rather than to fear God, wouldn't it? Now, just in a moment time here, I'm going to be admitting to you some things that aren't great. Some things that I'm not happy about. But at this very minute here, I'm going to admit to you that some, something that some of you may find absolutely absurd. I'm going to admit to you, especially you longtime Baptists, that at one time, I was a Presbyterian. Sorry to say. When I became an ordained Presbyterian minister, I had to go through a two-and-a-half-day psychological examine, examination. I had to go down to Columbus... And I was given all sorts of tests. And one test came back in particular, and it said I scored a notch too high on the paranoia scale. Now, those of you who know me, this I know it's not a shock. I understand. But I sat there, and the lady was giving me the results and deciphering, and she said, yeah, it seems a little out of whack. And I said, actually, let me ask you a question. Could me answering one of those questions wrong, so to speak, push me over the edge or mark me a tick up on that? She said, yeah, actually, it could. And I said, I think I know what question that was. You said, oh, really? I said, yes. Actually, there are statements, not questions. There are statements, and I had to answer yes or no to. And there was a statement. I remember thinking about it quite seriously. And the statement was, I dread earthquakes. And I was about ready to take no, because I don't sit around and dread earthquakes. But I thought about it. And, of course, I overthought myself. And I thought, well, who likes earthquakes? Does anybody not? If earthquakes happen, does anybody sit there and say, yeah, this is great? So, yeah, I dread earthquakes. So I marked yes. I'm paranoid, I guess. Right? She came back to me and said, I have an irrational fear of earthquakes. I have irrational paranoia. Right? They're worried that this irrationality would hurt the ministry. But I just want to make that point that Jesus isn't doing this here. He isn't raising their paranoia level. So they're just worried all the time about persecution. What Jesus is actually saying is that fear is not actually the enemy at hand misplaced fear is. Fear of people is very irrational. Fear of God, very rational. And in fact, it's the best thing for you. Now, this fear of people, this people-pleasing fear, we call it, as it relates to persecution, is the immediate context here. And Let me just say, whatever you think may be coming our way with respect to the government and persecution of Christians, I think we can all agree on the fact that today we are openly sitting here with freedom and relatively freedom from persecution, especially as it relates to the context we just read about. But I think if we understand verse 28 better, and I think with our understanding so far of it, that we can say that there are large stones that will be left unturned if we just think, oh, that was for them then. I don't really see how this applies to me, Marty, because I'm not under threat my faith. But I want to say to you this morning, as we learned about this passage, now let's apply it and just say there are many other ways that people fear other people, aren't there? And this is where I think this passage comes in specifically for you and me this morning. Now, I want to speak openly and candidly right now for a moment And confess to you how this fear of people, how this people fear problem has manifested itself in my life. I made a list. Sometimes, because of my fear of what people think of me, I have lied or exaggerated. Sometimes, so I wouldn't be labeled as a killjoy or prudish, I've joined in on jokes I shouldn't have. I've allowed gossip gossip or vitriol about someone to continue when I should have walked away or put an end to it. Sometimes I've held back from telling people what I do for a living out of fear of them associating me with one of those types. Because I feared how someone will respond, I've held back from a rebuke when it would have been the most loving thing I could have done for that person. Sometimes, out of fear of not wanting to deal with an issue, I've complained about others behind their back. Because I feared that many people may think I'm out of line with current styles and trends, I've spent much more money on myself than giving away in generosity for gospel causes. Because I feared what people may think about how my appearances, I spent much more time training my body than training myself in righteousness. I know, fail. I understand. <laughs> Because I feared not enjoying life as much as others, I've pursued worldly enjoyments more than godliness. Sometimes I've wanted to impress others more than God, so I've done good deeds and developed good habits to impress them rather than to be faithful to my Father. I've feared the loss of my reputation, so if I've covered up sins I shouldn't have when I should have confessed to a trusted friends. Out of fear of loss of someone else's reputation, I've helped cover up their sins instead of getting them help they need. Sometimes, I've spent prayerless days in anxiety about what people think of my upcoming sermon rather than prayerfully depending on God and thinking about what He thinks. See, hopefully this very abbreviated list of my unbroken people fear problem this unholy list that I just mentioned is enough to establish the point that we're talking about. And my hope is that maybe as you've heard me talk and you're, you've seen your own unbroken heart in this matter, and to be honest, I'm rather confident that that should be the case. It's not just me, friends. Now, what I've confessed to you this morning is not some scandal that I don't think ought to see me remove from my leadership position. Nothing I've confessed could be even close to deemed as a public disgrace. I'm just talking about the hundreds of daily battles I face, that you face. Hundreds of common failures I surrender to. Most are known to no one but me. Sometimes not even I know them. What I'm describing to you is the battle of proper fear that rages inside Christians' heart every single day. But see, when you start to say it out loud, make a list and say it out loud, it is such a disgrace, isn't it? Is there anything on that list that I just named that I could be proud of or have a good excuse for? No. It's a list of embarrassing failures that makes my heart heavy to stand up here to confess that I still greatly need God's sanctifying work in and through me. Friends, I want you to listen to this and, and listen carefully. This is not some side issue for those people, people like me or those people over there. I think this is where the Christian game is being played mostly every single day. It's where the battle wages for your soul. And to be honest with you, because I know a lot of you, and I hear, well, even those of you I don't know, I hear what you say, I think most of you give up too easily, just like me. See, when you think about it, it is kind of embarrassing that this kind of people fear that we surrender to, isn't it? Jesus was talking to a group of disciples, a group of people who had every reason to fear that they will be tortured and killed because of their loyalty to Jesus. And the same is true as our brothers and sisters of Christ around the world today, isn't it? And yet, here we are, with so much freedom from persecution and so much space that we have time to worry about whether people like me as much as I hope they will and they should wasting our time on petty fears is it not shameful as they're out defending the gospel putting themselves in harm's way losing their lives for Christ that we have these kinds of battles well perhaps the list list I mentioned didn't resonate with you but maybe a few diagnostic questions will would you rather be a meek and little no deacon in a church visiting shut ins and quietly praying for them in, in your home each morning unnoticed? Or would you rather be an esteemed church leader who the entire congregation knows? But to put it this way, do you need recognized for the things you do for the church and for the Lord? Do you get frustrated when you put in all that hard work back with the children, unnoticed there on the upper floor, week in and week out? Do you get frustrated when you're in the back office or supporting missionaries with your quiet prayers? Do you get frustrated when you're building that relationship with someone at work and never once someone says thank you for it? Do you get frustrated when no one gives you acknowledgement you think you deserve? One last diagnostic question. It comes from our passage here itself, verses 32 and 33. Have you ever been ashamed to speak the gospel to a friend? Have you ever been ashamed of Jesus' words before the world? Now, I'm not talking about his words like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just as a side, he never said that, friends. I'm talking about the words that Jesus says right here, the words of judgment and hell. Have you ever been ashamed of those words? If you said yes to any of these questions, then I'm going to suggest to you that there's a strong possibility that you fear men, you fear people, more than you fear God. This is exactly the problem with the Pharisees, right? They needed to be recognized for their righteousness and their rule following, their religiosity. But that, with that same fear of man, with that same people-pleasing fear, they led the charge to turn Jesus over to be killed. So it's no wonder, friends... That the rest of the Bible joins Matthew 10 here this morning. It urges us not to fear people. And from cover to cover, instead, it commends to us a great and wonderful fear of the Lord. Now, the question should be at this moment, hopefully you're convicted, the question should be at this moment what's the Bible's solution to this problem? How can we win this battle? Should I take on these fears that I listed one by one and slay them and mortify them? Well, surprisingly, and this is the big surprise, that's not the first thing the Bible says. So this isn't a sermon where I'm going to lay out to you all the fears that grip you and urge you to fight against them one by one, or I'm not going to wag my finger, I certainly can't do that, and say you should repent of each one. Now those are good things to do, but this is not where the emphasis of Scripture lies. It's surprising, isn't it? Instead, instead, the scripture urges us again and again to fear the Lord. And the logic seems to be this. That if we fear him more and more, we will come to naturally feel, uh, fear others. Less and less. The larger and more fearsome God becomes in our hearts and minds, the less we fear anything else. Illustration I heard I think does a good job. Woman on the platform waiting for the train for a morning commute. She's playing with her ring on her finger and it slips off and falls down into the tracks. And immediately fear rushes into her mind. What's my husband going to say when I tell him? What's his grandma going to say because she's the one that gave it to him? How are we ever going to pay for a replacement? And as she uses those fears to start to lunge down to grab the ring, she stops, paralyzed. Not because those fears are irrational, but because a greater fear just struck her. She sees the train barreling down, coming upon. See, legitimate fears are drowned out by larger fears. Greater fears have a way of making lesser fears shrink. This is the shape of Jesus' logic here in verse 28. Earlier in the sermon, I asked you the question, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world with much less fear? The Bible answers that question with a resounding no. The problem in the world, the problem with you, the problem with me, is not too much fear. The problem is the wrong kind of fear. The problem is that we don't fear enough. We don't fear the Lord. And I was confronted this wholeheartedly this week as I thought about this over and over again. The fear of the Lord may be a theological concept that I have back here in my head, but it certainly doesn't reign here in the front of my consciousness. Do I fear the Lord? See, the Bible could list a bunch of thou shall not fear people because this reason and that reason. But instead it says fear God. And friends, I want to encourage you. This is a very liberating approach, isn't it? Instead of having a thousand mountains to climb. Okay, I conquered this fear. Now this fear. I need to conquer this fear and the next one. Instead of all those mountains to climb, the Bible says let me tell you about a fear that can Outstrip and overwhelm every fear of man that you could possibly have. See, once we grasp this, once we understand this, the whole Bible opens up for us. You know, we listen to Pastor Chris and Pastor Al preach through First Peter. And over, over and over again in First Peter, you hear this idea of fear, fear, fear in a good way. It didn't make sense. Or how about this verse that never made sense to me? And so I'm starting, just starting to understand it now. Exodus 20, 20. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Exodus 20:20. Moses coming down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments... ...being petrified of God. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you... ...that the fear of Him may be before you... ...that you may not sin. In effect, that passage is saying... ...you don't need to be afraid of God... As long as you fear him. Never made sense to me. It's the same message that Christians from old have taught us. We just sang this, didn't we? John Newton, several hundred years ago, wrote that line. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Of course... If this is the solution we have for people fear, then it should be the solution for every kind of fear we have. Fear of the future, fear of conflict, fear of whatever you have, the anxieties that well up in you, maybe in the middle of the night, maybe in the morning as they rush in. The solution is always the same. Stop focusing on the fear and start focusing on God. And as we grow in fearing him, we'll find it harder and harder to fear anything or anyone else. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. My prayerful hope today is that you will go away knowing that the path to liberation from, I think, this ubiquitous people fear, the path to liberation is not less fear, but more. And to that end, I want to ask you that, as you listen to Psalm 8611, that maybe this is your prayer for this whole week. Psalm 8611, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. Our prayer is that God may grow in us such a fear of him, such a terrifying delight in him, that all other fears will melt away. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that prayer. Lord, and so easily it is to say those words. Cause us to fear you more, to tremble at your presence and your word and your awesomeness. But Lord, we, our prayer is really deeper than that. That you will well up inside us a sincerity when we say those words. That our lives we be prevalent with a holy and reverent and awesome fear that doesn't keep us scared of you, but brings us close to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that the fears that we have, the the oh so many fears that come into us each and every day, of people around us and what they think and may not think, and the future and all the things, Lord, we pray that indeed they will melt away because we know that death is in nothing when you've given us eternal life. Lord, Help us to believe this. Cause our faith to grow. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Make this true to our hearts and minds this day and always, Lord. In your son's name, we ask these things. Amen.